Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. We will finish up chapter 5 of 1 John, and we will finish up the book of 1 John itself. Our context is this, in the first 13 verses of 1 John 5, we read how John instructs his readers to overcome by the Son, and then he talks about testimony concerning the Son of God. In this section, verses 13 through 21, we're going to talk about knowing the Son of God. So we can say that the whole verse, the whole chapter 5 of 1 John is talking about the Son of God, overcoming by the Son of God, how we know He's the Son of God because of the testimony of God that has been given to us, and how we know the Son of God Himself, how we know Jesus. So we start in verse 14 and 15 of 1 John 5. Now this is the confidence we have before Him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Now, what's the this here? Now, this is the confidence we have. Well, it could either be that which came before, knowing that one has eternal life at the end of verse 13, where I finished off the last audio. John says this, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this is the confidence we have, that you know that you have eternal life. That's one option, or you could do it the way the Holman Christian Study Bible punctuates it. Now, this is the confidence we have before him, colon, and then what comes after the colon is what gives us the confidence. Well, what's the confidence? Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, whichever way it goes, both of these things are going to give us confidence. We know that we have eternal life, and we know that we ask. Whatever we ask, we get. If we ask according to his will, we get it. So that's confidence, folks, eternal life, and knowing that your prayers will be answered. Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Who's the him? Is it God or is it Jesus? We don't know. Either one's okay. Let's just assume it's God the Father. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, now this condition, according to his will, that condition is assumed in other verses in which we say we have what we ask. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon here. Let's give me some, let me give you some scriptures where Jesus promises us that he will answer our prayers. Luke 11:10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. There's nothing, there's nothing said there about if it's according to God's will. James 4, 2, you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. Nothing there about asking in God's will. But I say to you, of course, of course, it assumes that you have to ask what's in God's will. If you ask Jesus for a Lamborghini to be delivered to your doorstep tomorrow morning, do you really think that he's going to deliver the Lamborghini tomorrow morning on his doorstep, on your doorstep? No, he will not. Now, if you think about this and carry this a little bit further, let's think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, God, if it's your will, take this cup from me. So he was praying according to the will of God. He, he wanted something real badly, but he knew that it might not be God's will. So he put it in there. So we're going to have to assume this. And here in First John, it's stated explicitly, if we ask anything, according to his will. Now, that might hurt some people's confidence. They say, well, I pray, but I never get an answer. Well, the question is, are you praying amiss? Who is it? I think it's James that says you, you're praying amiss. You're praying wrongly. Well, obviously, if you're praying wrongly, God's not going to give you the answer. It's just like a five-year-old kid. Dad, I want the keys to the car. Well, God's not going to give you the keys to the car. Well, that doesn't mean he's not a prayer answering God. It means you're not praying 
in the according to the will of God. Now, let's carry this even further when we talk about praying for someone's salvation. And I've never heard people say, God, please save this person if it's according to your will. I guess it's because we're all steeped in Arminianism. Because think about it. If that person is not in the elect, you can pray all you want for his salvation. He ain't going to get saved because he's not in the elect. Now, that's a hard one to swallow. Of course, we don't know who's in the elect or not, so we just pray for him anyway. But, I mean, I prayed for an atheist father all my life from the time I was a 14 years old until I was, I don't know, I forgot how old I was when my father died. Say I was about, it was about 19 years ago. Anyway, it was over, it was about 40 years, let's say, I prayed. And he never showed one inclination of following Christ. He blasphemed Jesus from the get-go, from every day, continuously. He hated Jesus. Now, what am I supposed to think about that? Well, he could have had a deathbed conversion as he was unconscious in a coma. I hope that's what's happened, but I don't know that. So, you know, does that mean that I don't pray to God anymore and don't ask God for anything anymore because God didn't answer my prayer where I could see it? Because, listen, folks, when you pray for somebody's salvation, you have to assume it's according to his will that this person gets saved if he's going to get saved or not. Because if he's not in the elect, he's not going to get saved. Well, unless you're an Arminian, but I guess Arminians will look at that problem a little bit different than me. Okay, so God, if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And if we and if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked him for. Well, that's nice. So the key is, is always pray in God's name. Here's some other scriptures that say the same thing. John 14, 13, written by the same John in the gospel. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And again, that's assuming it's in God's will. Whatever you ask in Jesus' name. That should give us encouragement to pray. First John 3.22, a couple of chapters previous. We can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Whatever we ask from him, well, another condition, we keep his commands. You're not out there carousing, but you're living a godly life. Well, then ask what, ask what you will. And boy, I tell you, there's a lot of things that, that I need, that we need, that the church needs, that the society needs, that our country needs. Ask. And I figure, what's the worst that can happen? You can ask, and God says, no, okay, well, I'm going to ask again. <laughs> maybe maybe the time's not right. It is discouraging but when you don't get an instant answer to prayer, but God is not a genie in the Bible. Contrary to the, all the Kenneth Copelands and Benny Hens of this world and the Creflo Dollars, God is not a genie in the bottle that we order around. He is a prayer-answering God, but sometimes he makes us wait for the answers. That's what the essence of faith is, right? The essence of things not seen. We don't see the answers, so we keep praying. We have hope, a confident expectation of the future, which is not the present. And then when God does answer the prayers, oh, it's just such a wonderful, joyous time when we wait, we persevere, we endure, and there's the answer. And some of our answers we're not going to see till we get to the other side of death. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, if if we knew God's will perfectly, we could receive every single thing we ask for. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, that suggests to me that a goodly portion of our prayer ought to be asking how we should pray. And then, if we pray correctly, we're going to see answers. That's one good thing about praying in tongues, because you don't know what God's will is. A lot of times, you let the Holy Spirit pray. You know he's praying in, in God's will, even if you don't know what it is with your constrained mind. We go now to verse 16 of 1 John 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. Remember, this is talking about ask and get what you ask for, if it's according to his will. Now, you can ask for a sin, a brother that's sinning not unto death, and God will give life to him. He'll answer your prayer. 
to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. Now, there is a sin that brings death. I'm not saying we, he should pray about that. That would be praying, I suppose, outside of God's will, because if God has decided to bring death on this sinner, well, then there's no use praying about that, because that's not according to his will. Now, this actually is a, comp, is a difficult verse, so let's break it down a little bit. First of all, the A sin. If anyone sees his brother committing A sin, John Piper says that's misleading, and I think it is. The A is not in the original text. There's no article in the original text, and the reason there's no article there is because actually there's no indefinite article in the Greek. There's no a or an in Greek. If you want to express that, you have to leave off the article and just make it without article. Just leave the article off the noun, and then it becomes ambiguous. Are you saying committing a sin, not the sin, but a sin, or are you saying sin in general? Now, in English, we can distinguish those two things. We can't do it in Greek. John couldn't do it in Greek. So, let's just say that as anyone sees his brother committing sin in general, he's living a sinful lifestyle. Now, there's two kinds of sin here. One that does not bring death and one that does bring death. So, we need to distinguish. The problem with saying that there's a sin that does not bring death is the wages of every sin is death. How can you have a sin that doesn't bring death? Well, that's assuming there's no forgiveness. And so... You can have a sin that doesn't bring death because that sin could be atoned for, could be forgiven. As John Gill puts it, the sin is not continued, the sin is not repented of, and so therefore it leads to death. But if it is stopped and if it is repented of, then the sin does not lead to death. Let me give you a quote from Gill. Quote, he does not continue in it. He does not live in the constant commission of it. His life is not a course of iniquity. That sin he sins is not a governing one in him. Though he falls into it, he rises up out of it through divine grace and abides not in it. And he has a sense of it and is sorry for it, after a godly sort, loathes it and himself for it, is ashamed of it, ingenuously confesses it, and mourns over it and forsakes it. I love that prolix 19th century rhetoric. It goes on and on, but it brings the point, does it not? So I'm going to assume that this is sin... The sin that does not bring death is sin that is repented of. We note that it's a brother, and this is important if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So this is a Christian who is sinning. And, of course, a Christian will be convicted by the Holy Spirit, and he's going to stop sinning. So that's what John is talking about here. Now, there is a sin that brings death. Now, there's a question here. Is that the sin of the brother, or is that a sin of somebody else? Now, that's it's not clear. So we're going to have to go through some options of what this sin that brings death is. Now, Adam Clark prefaces the whole discussion of the verse by saying this is an extremely difficult passage and has been variously interpreted. Well, he's right. Now, I'm going to give you one, two, three interpretations of this sin that brings death that I don't really think is correct, and I'm going to give you the fourth interpretation, which I believe is correct. So let's start out with interpretation number one. This sin that brings death is the willful rejection of Jesus, i.e. the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And John Gill says here, quote, The sin against the Holy Spirit, which is neither forgiven in this world nor in that to come, and therefore must be unto death. It is a sinning willfully, not in a practical, but a doctrinal way. After man has received the knowledge of the truth, it is a willful denial of the truth of the gospel, particularly that peace, pardon, righteousness, eternal life, and salvation are by Jesus Christ contrary to the light of his mind, and this joined with malice and obstinacy, so that there is no more or other sacrifice of such a sin. There is nothing but a fearful looking for of wrath and fury to fall on such opposers of the way of life, 
And as the presumptuous sinners under Moses' law died without mercy, so must these despiteful ones under the gospel. Okay, so there's a sin that brings death. Well, the problem with that is, of course, that if it's a brother doing this, then we shouldn't pray about that. But it does. John doesn't really say it's a brother. But he implies it. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, but there is a sin that doesn't bring death, it sounds like he's still talking about his brother. And if that's the case, then this, then the sin that leads to death would not be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I tend to think. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit verse, by the way, is in Matthew 12, 31. Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That was woeful rejection of Jesus' ministry. He had done through the Holy Spirit of God miracles right in front of these hard-hearted Pharisees' eyes, and they said, oh, you're from the devil. Well, that's, you know, you do that, you're not going to be forgiven that. Now, notice here that we have in our try in our attempts to interpret that phrase, the sin that brings death, we have to decide what death is. Is it death, eternal death, or is it physical death? Well, here, there's a sin that brings death. If it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's eternal death. Now, if John is talking about people who have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, then perhaps John was referring to the heretics he's been referring to all through his letter, these proto-Gnostic docetists who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh, said he was a ghost. Could be. That's option number one. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No use praying for people like that. They're going to hell. Nothing you can do going to stop that. Or it could refer to a distinction in the Jewish law. Some transgressions were worse than others and had a death penalty attached. So that would be a sin leading to death, the bad sins in the Jewish law. This is Adam Clark presenting this idea. For example, idolatry, incest, blasphemy, and breach of the Sabbath. Those were serious sins. They had a death penalty attached. They were sins unto death. But here's a problem with that view. Why would we not pray for someone committing the grosser forms of lawbreaking? I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul went around attempting judicial murder. And in fact, he said, I persecuted the Christians unto death, which sounds like he succeeded sometimes in seeing Christians killed. Jesus forgave that. And so now he, we're saying here that there's a sin, idolatry, that leads to death. I don't say we should pray for that. Oh, this person committed incest. I don't think we should pray for him. Oh, this person committed blasphemy. I don't believe we should pray for him. Oh, this person picked up sticks on the Sabbath. I don't believe we should pray for him. That doesn't make any sense. So let's scratch that option. Here's option number three. The penalty, the sin that leads into the death, refers to civil laws that have the death penalty attached. And so John would be saying, therefore, there's no use praying for someone who's under the penalty of death, the guilty party is doomed. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. This opinion, which has been advanced by Rosenmuller, intimates that men should feel for each other's distresses and use their influence in behalf of the wretched, nor ever abandon the unfortunate, but where the case is utterly hopeless. Well, the problem with that is, what if the case is utterly hopeless? What's wrong with praying for a miracle? John's saying, ah, don't pray for that. That's too big for God. I don't think so. So that's option number two and three. I don't think really fits really works too good here is the option that i think is correct and i got a lot of good people on my side on this one the sin that leads unto death is a grievous sin which god is determined to punish with physical death not eternal death as in with blasphemy of the holy spirit but with physical death because we know like ananias and sapphire found out you can sin not lose your salvation but you can get blasted in this life with physical death how about the guy that was sinning in corinth sleeping with a stepmother I don't think Paul said he was, he was he was going to be turned over to Satan that his flesh might be destroyed. That sounds like physical death to me. 
And so what John would be saying here, look, there's no use praying against somebody that insists on sinning and sinning and sinning. If he's not going to repent, what's the point of praying for this person? Now, I said I had some good company on this opinion. Adam Clark, John Wesley, the NIV Study Bible, and John Piper all agree with that interpretation. Well, must be true. we got all those guys saying it. I'm just being facetious, of course, but uh, it is nice to every now and then be in a majority, have a majority opinion. I rarely have that luxury, so I'm enjoying this. Now, John Gill points out that it's difficult to know what kind of sin this is. One sin, a sin, a sinner, a Christian who is sinning on and on and on. At what point do you stop praying for him because it becomes hopeless? Yeah, that's real hard. I remember I was working in a home for neglected and abused girls, and there was this one young lady named Emily, and Emily kept asking for prayer for me. I said, okay, I'll pray for you, Emily. Which one do you pray about? She says, I keep having sex when I go to school. And, of course, she was, you know, these kids had horrible backgrounds, neglected and abused by their parents, beaten sometimes, or just treated awfully. And But this was a Christian home, and so, you know, she knew that it was wrong, and so she prayed that that she would stop. I said, okay, I'll pray for you. So she'd go to school, come back. She said, Dad, I want you to pray for me again. About what? Well, I had sex with another boy at school. I'm thinking, well, what kind of idiot boys do you have at this school? I mean, you know, you don't you don't go to high school and just have sex and get seduced day after day with different people. You do it because you want it. You do it because you're looking for it. You're asking for it. Oh, please don't get on me about being unfair to women. I'm telling you, this girl was asking for it. And I said, Emily, you've got to stop doing this. She says, I know, I know. She'd go, and I mean, this must have happened five, six, seven times. It just kept right on. And so finally she asked me again. I said, Emily, I'm sorry, I'm not going to pray for you anymore. It's the only time I've ever done that in my life. She said, why? I said, because you don't show any inclination, any desire to stop doing what you're doing. Now, in that case, I think that that was the sin that was leading to her physical death. And I don't know whether she ended up physically dying or not. Some of those girls did, actually. I don't know whatever happened to her, but. I, I just quit praying. Now, I might have been too hard. It's a hard thing to know when to stop praying for somebody because I'm telling you, there was another another young Christian woman. Well, she was, well, yeah, she was Christian because I led her to the Lord. This was in China. But this, golly, this, she was in her early 20s, I think, when she got saved. And she, her mother had abandoned her. her she didn't get along with her stepfather. Didn't even talk to him. She was rebellious. And she was mightily screwed up. But, I, you know, she accepted Christ, and that was years ago, what, 10 years ago? She's now happily married with a little girl and a husband who loves her. And I was advised by a lot of people, including myself, <laughs> let this girl go. She's crazy. She won't listen. She won't do what she's supposed to do. She's rebellious, and she's basically only halfway civilized. I, I'm, I'm trying not to exaggerate. I'm actually understating the case. I have never in my life seen anybody that made my hair turn gray. But I didn't give up on her. I kept praying. In fact, I went one year without even speaking to her. And she called me up after a year, after I got so mad at her. I said, that's it. I did give up on her. I can't say I didn't give up on her. I, I didn't talk to her for a year. And uh, anyway, she was also mad at my wife. But she didn't have a mother. Now she, she loves my wife now because I guess my wife is a mother substitute. And she, and she found a husband. And everything worked out fine. She loves the Lord. She's still, you know, well, compared to a lot of Christians I know, she's, you know, she's not flying exactly right. But she's doing pretty good considering where she came from. I could have given up on her easily. I was advised to. 
But I didn't, and now it had a happy ending. So I just don't know. That's just a hard, hard thing. As John Gill said, I mean, it's hard to know when you stop praying for somebody when they're in a a sin that's leading to death between you and the Holy Spirit on how you handle that. We go now to 1 John 5, 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. Well, he just said in the previous verse about sin that doesn't bring death, he said, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, and in verse 17, there is such a sin, a sin that does not bring death. Now, that seems kind of strange to me. Why would he say that? There's a sin that does not bring death. Why does John make this obvious statement here? Well, it might not have been so obvious to the people who heard it. John's readers might think that since all sin leads to death, there's no sense to pray for anybody. Oh, we got a brother, he's sinning. Well, just let him go. No sense to pray for him. And John's saying, no, wait a minute. There's a sin that does not bring death. That that brother, like that Chinese, young Chinese woman, she could be brought back from death. So, I'm, you know, it's, it, yes, it's unrighteous and it's sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to die. You need to pray for them to keep them from dying. So he would be saying, John would be saying, yes, I can see that all unrighteousness is sin. Yep. And all sin leads eventually to death. Yeah, that's true. But in the case of your brother, his sin does not necessarily bring death. So remember to pray for him. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible doesn't show, uses the word and here instead of but. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin that does not bring death. But many translations have a but there. Here's the Mace New Testament. Everything that is contrary to virtue is a sin, but every sin is not a mortal sin. And that makes it clear. He, he's conceding, yes, it's true that uh, everything uh, that is unrighteous is sin, and that's bad. I, I grant you that, but, 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 it doesn't mean that every sin is going to lead to a mortal death. Every, not every sin is a mortal sin. 1 John 5:17, the New American Bible, all wrongdoing is sin, but there's a sin that is not deadly. So I grant you that I'm not saying that sin is okay, but I'm saying there is some sin that doesn't lead to death. We need to pray for those brothers. 1 John 5:17, Wesley New Testament, there is a sin unto death, and do not say that he shall pray for that. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is a sin not unto death. Here's the Bible in basic English, all evil, all evil doing is sin, but death is not the punishment for every sort of sin. So that makes sense. So we need to pray for these brothers. Now that's one option as to why John made that statement that there's a sin that does not bring to death and we need to pray for them. Here's another option. We believers, upon hearing of a sin unto death, they might think that they have committed such a sin. And John is here assuring them that though they have sinned, it doesn't mean they will die. So John would be saying this, all unrighteousness is sin, and that's true, you people who are so worried about your sin, but just remember, there's a sin that does not bring to death. In other words, the option is, is it the brother that is sinning, and we are scared that he's going to die because of his sin, so we're not going to pray for him, or is it me personally? Is it the, a Christian who's not looking at his brother, but is looking at himself and saying, well, I've sinned, and therefore I'm going to die, so there's no use praying for me. Either way, John is encouraging, hey, pray for your brother that's in sin. Don't give up on him. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, John says we know. He uses that word over and over in the book of 1 John. He's con- he is continuing his theme of finding true gnosis, knowledge, in contrast to the false Gnostic he's writing against who thinks that true knowledge comes from secret passwords and angelic hierarchies and esoteric religious-sounding formulations, no. 
we know because we know Jesus. And again, that's the theme of this whole chapter, really, is knowing Jesus. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now, why does John say that everyone who is born of God does not sin? And of course, that means not sin continuously as, a, as, a, as an habitual lifestyle. Why does John say that? Well, he added that, according to Jameson, Foster, and Brown, to avoid the abuse, a possible abuse of verses 16 and 17. Now, there are two possible erroneous takes people could make on those two verses that we just read about sin leading to death and sin not leading to death. Here's the first possible error that people could make. People could abuse the fact that there is sin not leading to death. They might think, oh, there's a sin not leading to death. Well, I can sin. It won't lead to death. So I'm free to sin and do whatever I want to. Well, John's going to stop that abuse in verse 18 by saying this. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. So get it out of your mind that just because I said there's a sin not leading to death, that you can get out and do all kinds of sin that doesn't lead to death. You're not going to do that because you're born of God. And guess what? Like father, like son, God's holy. You need to be holy too. All right, that's the first possible erroneous take people could make. There's a sin not leading to death, so I can go ahead and sin and not end up dying. Second erroneous take people could make on those previous two verses, they could abuse the fact that there is sin leading to death. They could think any sin I do will lead to death, so it's no use praying because I'm doomed. Well, John guards against that problem by saying the evil one does not touch him. So quit thinking that you're doomed just because you, if you've been involved in a sin, stop sinning. Don't think you're, you're doomed. Just stop sinning and exhibit the holy characteristics of your father. Now, let me just repeat this. I've said it before. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. That doesn't mean he never commits a sin. It means it doesn't mean sinless perfection. In other words, it means, well, it could mean one of two things. It could mean one born of God is not sin unto death, so don't think that you're going to die when you commit a sin. Or it could mean that it is not sin in the sense of living under the power and dominion of sin continuously as a habit. Present tense there has the aspect of continuously, habitually sinning. That's extremely important. I mean, if you interpret it that way, we know that everyone who has been born of God is not sin. Oh, really? Christians never sin. Well, that's not reality. Either in my life or you know, the people I've been around, Christians sin big time. The difference is, of course, that they're forgiven for it and they confess it and they don't go around justifying it like people in our pagan culture do. Oh, I, I love my homosexual partner, so therefore if it's love and it's consensual, it's okay. You know, they make up their own standards. Now we have this phrase here, but the one who is born of God keeps the brother and the evil one does not touch him. This phrase, the one who is born of God keeps him. Well, there's two ways you can interpret that. The one, and it depends a lot on the pronoun there, textual variance on the variance on the pronoun him. The King James uses e-alton, which is keeps himself. So you would read it this way, but the one who is born of God keeps himself. He looks out for himself. Well, already I have a little bit of a theological problem there. Keeps yourself? How many people you know to keep themselves? Let me read that in the King James. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. However, as the Cambridge Commentary, the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges says, most editors prefer alton there for the pronoun, which means him, not e alton himself. The Holman Christian Study Bible has him. So, and I think that's what it is, because I don't think Christians are going to be keeping themselves. But then if you say that, the one who is born of God, that's Jesus, keeps him, keeps the Christian who is born of God. 
but then doesn't that sound awful Aryan? Jesus is born of God. Well, the answer to that, he's born of God in the sense he's the only begotten son, just like at the Nicene Creed, which condemned Arianism from here for forever. So I don't think any Jehovah's Witnesses are going to get any comfort out of that verse. It means the only begotten son of God. It means he has the characteristics of God. He's born of God in the sense that he shares the spiritual DNA of God. He is God the Son, the person of the Son, and God the Father is the person of the Father. It doesn't mean that he, there was a time when he was not. It does not mean that he was created by God the Father. We go now to verse, oh, let me, before I do that, let's look at this phrase, the devil does not touch him. Think about what a victorious verse that is. The devil doesn't touch you. You know, there's a lot of Christians going around afraid, oh, the devil made me do this, and the devil's got me bound up, and the devil did this, and the devil did that. The devil's always whipping up on these Christians. Well, hey, the scripture says the devil does not touch you if you're born of God. The devil does not touch you. He doesn't affect you. You got him whipped if you'll just walk in it. Walk in the victory that Jesus had on the cross when he made mockery of all the hostile powers that were arrayed against him. He laughed at him. God laughed at him. He said, we got you. You thought you had him in the grave, but look ahead. He rose again. You thought you had... That death had won. You came into the world to steal, to kill, and destroy. And you try to destroy the Son of God. And look what's happened. He has whipped your worthless, slimy butts. He's whipped you. This is proof that the Christian can never commit the unpardonable sin and lose the salvation of blaspheming against God. Here's what Barnes says, quote, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, is not habitually and characteristically a sinner, does not ultimately and finally sin and perish, cannot therefore commit the unpardonable sin. Though we may fall into sin and grieve his brethren, yet we are never to cease to pray for a true Christian. We are never to feel that he has committed the sin which is never, which has no forgiveness, and that he has thrown himself beyond the reach of our prayers. Well, Barnes is pretty strong, but you know you got to leave some room in there for there's, there is a sin that leads to death, and John says don't pray for that. You know, kind of like not casting your pearls before swine. But at any rate. The devil doesn't touch the Christian. Forget this idea about the Christian committing the blasphemous sin. If you're a Christian, if you're worried about committing the unpardonable sin, as people always say, well, then you're not committing the unpardonable sin because people who commit the unpardonable sin are quite happy to commit it and not worried about it. They don't want God. They're happy to be gone from God. 1 John 5:19. we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. We know, John continues his theme of finding true gnosis, true knowledge. He uses knowledge. He uses that word all through the book of 1 John. True knowledge as opposed to the false knowledge of the Gnostics he's writing against. That we are of God. Notice the contrast in this, in this verse. We as opposed to the world. God as opposed to the evil one. And we are of God. The world is the evil one. Of course, the evil one is the devil the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is all under the superintendence and maintenance of our, the enemy of our souls, Satan. So why do you want to go out there and get rich and get famous and go out there and shack, shack up with every girl you can find or every man that you can find? Why do you want to do that? The we there could be we apostles or it could be we Christians. I tend to think it's we Christians, although oftentimes it is apostles. It doesn't matter. Either way, we are of God. The world is un, and the and the Intent here is to show there's a contrast between being of God and being under the sway of the evil one who is unrighteous. And we know that if you look at a brother and he is not sinning because he's born of God, well, then you know he's not of the devil. You know, the, the bad news is the world hates us because they, the world hated our master and hates us. That's the bad news. But the good news 
is that Jesus has overcome the world. That's the good news. The world here, by the way, does not refer to the inhabited planet, the earth and the air and the sea and the skies and all that. No. The, the planet is under the sway of God, not Satan. God, it's God's world. But it's the world system which is opposed to God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. Here's a good quote from Adam Clark. Quote, yes, they're worldly men. Actions are opposed. Their actions are opposed to the law of God. Their conversations shallow, simulus, and false. That's a nice word, simulus. I have no idea what it means, but it sounds real bad. Their contracts forced, interested, and deceitful. Their quarrels puerile, ridiculous, and ferocious. And their friendships hollow, insincere, capricious, and fickle. All, all the effect of their lying in the arms of the wicked one, for thus they become instinct with his own spirit. And because they are their father, the devil, therefore his lust, they will do. I love the way these 19th century writers write. That's bad business, folks, and that sounds just like people are in the world here in the 21st century. Shallow, fickle, hollow hypocrites. They're not going to love you, even though they say they love you. This idea of the world being opposed to Christians, John mentions it in 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. As I was saying, that's the good news. Jesus in you is greater than the devil that's in the world. You have to live in the world. The world's going to hate you because it hated your master, Jesus. That's okay, because Jesus is bigger than the world. I'm telling you, things are so hard in this world, you have got to hold on to the power of Jesus that's in the Christian. You've got to be reminded of it. You need to recite the scripture over and over again. Listen to Christian music that puts the scripture in there. In fact, I just heard a song the other day. As greater is he that is in you than he is who is in the world. And I said, yeah, I just read that in 1 John 4. I don't need to be beaten down by all the filth, the wells of poison that are poured out every day. I mean, just the other day I read a new, two news articles that said that the new number one song by B. Cardi, rap singer. The lyrics are so filthy that they couldn't even quote them in the article. It's all about teenage prostitution or some something like that. And I, our culture has gotten so degenerate that, and it, it, it doesn't stop. It just, you know, the sinners start nibbling at the edge of the culture, and then they take a bigger bite, and then they get worse and worse, and pretty soon our culture is circling down the toilet bowl. And we're ahead, and we're about to be flushed. John seventeen fourteen says, I have given them your word, Jesus speaking. The world hated them because they are not of the world as I am not of the world. As I said, that's the bad news. The good news is the greater is Jesus in you than the devil that's in the world. First John five twenty, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. There's that word know again. True knowledge as opposed to the false knowledge of the Gnostics. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. Again, Son of God is a big theme of this chapter 5, the Son of God, knowing the Son, knowing about the Son, testimony concerning the Son. He mentions true one. The Son is the true one. He's the true God, in other words. This idea of proving true as opposed to false is all through the book of 1 John, whom our hands have handled, our eyes have seen, our ears have heard. He's real. He's not a ghost. He's also divine because in this verse, chapter 20, verse 20, he says he is the true God. So not only is he true man, he is true God. And I'm going to prove it to you. He's the true one. So John is, is trying to shore up the shaky belief of some of his readers, apparently. John says in verse 20, we are in the true one. In can be translated 
every time I see in, I just immediately substitute in union with. We are in union with the true one. We are in union with him. That is his son, Jesus Christ. We're in union with the true one, God. That is in his son, Jesus Christ. That is in union with his son, Jesus Christ. So we're in union both with the father and with the son. He, Jesus, is the true God. That means as opposed to false gods that are out there, such as the ones that the Gnostics were preaching. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. All right, I've already mentioned that he's, that John has affirmed both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. And now John mentions that Jesus gives us eternal life, which is a big theme not only in the book of 1 John, but also in the Gospel of John. He's repeating what he said back in verses 11 through 13, some of which were mentioned in, well, they were all mentioned in the last audio. Let me read them again. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Eternal life. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Life is eternal. Once it starts, it doesn't stop. So how can you lose your salvation, Armenians? You might want to think about that a little bit. Eternal. We're going to be with him forever. We are never going to die. I remember I was witnessing somebody, to some fellow professor of mine who has since backslidden. And I mentioned something about how, all the great, how great it was to be saved and have your sins forgiven and so forth. And I mentioned in the course of it, and you're never going to die. And I remember thinking, gosh, maybe that's too hard for this person to comprehend. But I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Tell people they're going to have eternal life. I used to tell people, students, because they're young, they think they're going to live forever. And you, you could get hit by a car walking out of this meeting, meeting that you're going to. How do you know you're going to live forever? Oh, I'll worry about that later. Well, if you can find somebody who's worried about dying, tell them about eternal life. Because death is something, folks, that hangs over everybody. So like Hamlet, you know, what, oh, maybe I should shuffle off this mortal coil. I don't know what death is going to be like. You know, that famous passage in... Shakespeare's Hamlet, everybody's got a theory of the afterlife. I'm just going to disappear, or I'm going to go to heaven whether I believe in Jesus or not. It doesn't matter about my sins. Yeah, wishful thinking. First John 5:21. John finishes up his book by, by saying, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Little children, he closes with the same affectionate expression he used near the beginning of the letter in 1 John 2, 1. He said, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Little children, it's affectionate. He's given them some heavy exhortation, but it's clear. He loves them. Guard yourself from idols. When John was writing, Christians were surrounded by idols. It was impossible to avoid intercourse with idols, as Jameson Fawcett Brown has said. So, if that's what your problem is, then you need to guard yourself from it. If you're living next to a Buddhist temple in China, well, you need to guard yourself against idols. If you... I mean, I just prayer request in church yesterday. Some young woman, uh, uh, a relatively elder woman in the church, uh, was praying for the a friend of her daughter's who was young in her 20s, and she had hung around uh, some friends of hers who were Christians and loved their marriage and loved their lifestyle and thought this was great, Christian marriage was great. Then she decided to go out and have a quote-unquote homosexual marriage, sodomite, sodomite union, which the... Supreme Court, in its ignorance, calls marriage. And so this elderly woman wrote to her and said, you know, please, you know, gave her basically the truth. And, of course, she was rejected. The woman said, oh, you're you're hateful, and just turned her off, you know. Well, folks, and, and 
especially since she found a church that backed her up and will marry her. Well, these churches are the last vomit of the Antichrist, except I don't believe in an end-time Antichrist. So let's just say the last vomit of Satan, a church that will do that because it's leading that young woman straight into hell, straight into unhappiness. Not in the hell if she's saved, and apparently she was saved. She would be one of these people that, in First John, it says, there's a sin not leading to death. Well, that she's engaged in a sodomite union and calling it marriage, that is not a sin that leads to death. It could, if she continues in it, lead to her early demise. But I think, you know, she could still be prayed for, and we did. We prayed for her that she would see the light and come out of her sin. But my point is, getting back to this verse, when you're surrounded by something, that's what you're going to be tempted by. The Christians in Ephesus, where I assume John is writing to, they were surrounded by idols. And so that's what they needed to guard against. Well, in America, we are surrounded by sexual filth. We live in a moral cesspool, a sexual anarchy. And therefore, we need to guard ourselves from that crapola. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished 1 John chapter 5 and have finished the book of 1 John. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you stay tuned as I continue on with my verse-by-verse exposition of the New Testament. We will take up 2 John in the next audio. hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.